0: You're by my perfect fire, my perfect life. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guy. It's just me this week, guys. It's Scott Powell. Um, this, is the, this is the Lanky Guys. Father Peter's out of town, and as I was preparing to put a rerun on another repeat episode for us, Um, which I wasn't thrilled to do because we had one not too long ago. I was looking over the readings, and I was looking at them, and I didn't really recognize them. And usually I have some point of reference for, you know, the readings together. And as I was going back, I realized that three years ago, which would have been the equivalent readings in the liturgical cycle, there was no Seventh Sunday of Ordinary Time because that year, Lent actually started on... um, Valentine's Day, which is kind of funny. So there wasn't a Seventh Sunday of Ordinary Time three years ago because we were already in one of the earliest Lent's in memory, um, which we're not yet. So thank goodness we're not fasting yet. So we can have a little more fun have some, uh, I'm eating some sour cream and cheddar ruffles right now because it's not Lent. So that being said, um, I get to be with you. So we'll probably be a little bit condensed today because I don't have anyone to banter with. I'm kind of staring at an empty chair across from me, but so be it. Um, but why don't we go ahead and jump in? So we are, like I said, in the seventh Sunday of Ordinary Time this week, and our first reading is going to be coming from the book of 1 Samuel, which is kind of exciting because 1 and 2 Samuel are not books that tend to show up in the liturgical cycle very often, which is a shame because they're real they're, there's some amazing stories and narratives in these book. It tells the story of King Saul, who is the first king of Israel, who was um, really problematic for Israel, and then the one who comes afterwards, King David, who we're all fairly familiar with, and the story of King Solomon, who we don't get this week, but the great story we we get really one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament this week about this um, struggle that King Saul and King David are actually having with each other. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But we're our first reading is coming from First Samuel chapter 26 verse 2 and then jumping to verse 7 through 9 and then jumping again to verse 12 through 13 and then jumping again to verse 22 through 23 which is funny it's kind of piecemealed out this week which the reason for that is this is this really great story that's a little bit long and the liturgy is is trying its best to kind of condense this story into what you need to know um so we'll unpack that a little bit in uh, in just a bit so that's our first reading our responsorial psalm is coming from psalm 103 and we're getting verse one through two, three through four, eight, verse ten, and then verse twelve through thirteen. And the response itself is coming from Psalm, uh, from verse eight a. The Lord is kind and merciful. So we'll talk about that in a second. Our second reading is coming from First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse forty-five through forty-nine, which is picking up just where we left off. Excuse me, left off last week. And then our gospel is coming from Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 38, which is also kind of fun because it's one of those passages that's really recognizable. You guys have heard this a million times uh, but it's a lot more difficult and challenging of a reading than I think sometimes we give we give it credit for and I'm excited to read Jesus's message in Luke 6. It, it comes in what's called the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but in light of the first reading, I think it kind of really comes alive in a, in a very concrete way. So that being said, let's jump into 1 Samuel. <clears throat> so 1 Samuel is this. Here's what, here's what you need to know about 1 Samuel. First Samuel is taking place in this time of Israel when the people have decided that they really want a king. They've been, um, if you kind of put it in context of salvation history, so God has been building his covenant people. He established them as a nation. They uh, were released from their long 400-year captivity in Egypt. Remember, they came out of Egypt, the Exodus, Moses, all that stuff. They acquired the promised land at the time of Joshua. And then they were led for a while after the death of Joshua by a series of what are called judges, which are not... Quite judicial; it's not um, legal in the term that we, in the way that we think about it. There were these representatives that God sort of put in place to lead His people, and some of the judges were good; most of them were pretty bad. And now we're actually getting to a point in salvation history where the people start demanding a king, which is a very interesting moment. Um, Samuel, one of my favorite figures in the Old Testament, my son is actually named after him. He uh, is charged by God with. Um, kind of leading the people, but he's going to be the one to anoint the kings. And he will begin by anointing this guy named King Saul, which uh, is unfortunate. You know, there is a sense, so a lot of people read First Samuel and they see the people of God demanding a king. And actually specifically what their demand is, is that we want a king like the other nations, which you can kind of grammatically read in one of two ways. You could read it as being, we want a king like the other nations have, or we want a king who is like the king of the other nations. And you really get the sense, I think, that You know, back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is taking place during the time of the Exodus, God actually gives instructions to Israel for what kind of king they should be looking for, which implies that some point down the line, as God continues to build them up as a people and they settle in the land eventually, that they will have a king. But God makes it very clear that when they have a king— he wants his king to be very different than the other nations. He wants his king to be a sort of earthly representation of the love of God so that people can look toward Israel and see an image of what God is m- meant to be in the world. But what Israel demands in the time of First Samuel is something very different. They say, no, we want a king like the other nations have. We want to be like them because we feel inadequate. We don't feel like we're cool enough. And so there's this very kind of heartbreaking scene in which Samuel is sort of charged with finding and anointing this king, and the people choose a king who is not right. And Samuel knows this, and he's well aware that they're making a bad decision. He kind of sees the writing on the wall, and it's going to be this huge source of heartbreak later on. But basically what Israel does is say, we want a king who looks like a king. And so they choose this guy named Saul. And in a lot of ways, the reason that Israel picks Saul is because he looks like what they think a king ought to look like. He's tall, he's strapping, he's good looking, he's a mighty warrior. He he just looks the part. And there's this theme that runs throughout the books of Samuel that says man, human beings, we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and the people are choosing a King based on the outward appearance. They're like, well, he looks like the part, so we should choose him. And you can tell Samuel has a lot of misgivings and he doesn't think this is right. And we're not really asking God to help guide us in this process. So long story short, they choose this guy named Saul, who is a whack job and he's kind of out of control. And you know, psychologists actually study the life of Saul, King Saul, as a great example of a person who really gets spun out mentally and psychologically, he goes a little bit crazy. He gets paranoid. He he's he's very big-headed. He's terrified for his own power. Um, it's a it's a fascinating story to kind of walk through. But he ends up being a terrible king. He's very corrupt. He does not care for the people. He is not an image of God. And so Samuel is charged again by God with anointing somebody else. And what's interesting about the story is that now Samuel is charged with going and finding someone who actually doesn't seem like they fit the bill. And some of you know this story. It happens much earlier in 1 Samuel. But he goes to this family of this guy named uh, named Jesse who has all of these sons. It's almost like Cinderella, right? God tells Samuel to go to this, this guy named Jesse who has a bunch of sons. And he sees all of the sons and he realizes the shoe doesn't fit, so to speak, right? There's all these brothers, but, but they're not right. And he's like, well, do you have any other sons? And he's like, well, I have this other son, he's really young. His name is David. He's out with the flocks. So you, don't, you don't really want him. It's like the Cinderella, right? And Samuel's like, no, I, I want him. I want to meet him. And he meets Samuel, who's very young. And actually, um, the description for Samuel, he's not big and strapping. He, he's tough. And we find out he spent many years shepherding the sheep and defending them from bears and lions. And he's actually stronger than he looks. He's scrappier, but he doesn't quite look the part. And yet, and yet, God makes it clear to Samuel that, no, this is the one who I want as king. And so Samuel anoints David in that moment, which is interesting because King Samuel still sits on the throne. And what we enter into from this point on is the story of the gradual rise of David and the fall of Saul which is fascinating. And David is anointed king, but hes it's done kind of in secret. And it's done with another sitting king. And the reason this is significant and how this kind of all fits into place is there's uh, one of the big themes that runs through the entire Old Testament is this theme of people refusing to wait on the plans of God. People getting impatient with God, and so we want to take matters into our own hands. This is what Adam and Eve, in a very real sense, are doing. They say, well, God said this, but we see something else that we want to do, and so we're going to take what is not ours to take. Um, Later on, Abraham's going to do this when he has an affair with Hagar, because God promised him a son, but it's not happening. And so he takes And you get all of these stories about these great biblical figures who do not wait. They do not trust, and they take things that are not theirs to take. And the story of David, in a lot of ways, is the antithesis of that. David is this guy who knows he's king. He knows that he is God's chosen one to lead his people, but he waits 20 years while most of that time getting chased around through the wilderness, having his life sought, being you know threatened with death by King Saul, who catches wind about all these things, is threatened by the fact that everybody loves David, that David's a mighty warrior, that David seems like a threat to his kingship, that David may have had a secret anointing at some point from Samuel, and Saul gets freaked out, and he chases after David, and David has to flee for his life, and he spends years running through the desert, hiding in caves, having his life sought by this king who ought not be king, knowing full well that he is the one who God wants to be king, but never taking it, never grasping at it, always waiting, always being patient, For God to show him, okay, now is the time. And it's really fascinating because David waits about 15 years, basically, of being chased around by Saul. And then when he eventually is made king, he's only made king of the tribe of Judah. And he has to wait about seven more years to be made king of all of Israel. So the story of David, David does have a, a big downfall later in his life. But part of what makes David so great is that David learns very early on to wait on the Lord, which is an important lesson. And so where we kind of pick up the story, so that's the backdrop, where we're dropped into the story this week in 1 Samuel 26 is this really interesting story. And there's a couple times where what happens in chapter 26, it happened before. There's a couple different occasions where something very much like this happens. And the story goes like this. So David's out in the desert. He's on the run. He's hiding from Saul. Saul's got armies and thousands of troops searching for David. And David's hiding out with his guys, his little ragtag group. And so Saul's going down and there's there's this group of spies that are kind of out there for Saul. And they find David and they send word back to Saul, hey, we found him, we know where he is. And so Saul goes there and he his army is camped out one night and they're sleeping in this particular place in the desert. And David finds out about it and he sees Saul and his army encamped kind of across the valley. And so All of his guys, his buddies who are with him, and they're like, hey, there's Saul. And uh, one of David's uh, advisors basically tells him, and you get this in the reading. He, whisper, he whispers to David, God has delivered your enemy into your grasp this day. There he is. He's asleep. He's vulnerable. Now's your chance to pounce. And they go over to the camp and they find everybody asleep, which we're actually told in Samuel as part of the providence of God, because somebody should be keeping watch. And that actually comes into play later on in the story. But everyone's asleep. And David goes there and there's literally a spear sitting next to Saul's head. And all of David's guys are like, look, you can do this right now. You don't have to run anymore. You can finally claim your kingship. Saul is a disaster. Everybody knows it. Wouldn't everyone be so thankful if finally we could be rid of Saul and you could take your rightful place as king? And there's a spear. It's a weapon literally waiting for you to do it. You just need to shove it in one time and you're done. And David has this pretty incredible response And he says, essentially, who am I to kill the Lord's anointed? As long as Saul lives, God is keeping him living. As long as he sits on that throne, it is because God has chosen to keep him there. For whatever reason, God has chosen to do that. Which is such a, on on our, you know, our kind of sinful human nature, it's the opposite of what so many of us would want to do, right? There's this corrupt person who should not be there. I have the opportunity to take matters into my own hands and deal with this. But David says no. He says, that's not my job. My job is to wait on the Lord, and it's not my job to kill this guy. God is the author of life and death. God is the one who puts Saul on the throne, and if God wants to take Saul off the throne, then God will have to do that, and I will have to wait. And so... They steal the spear and this jug that's sitting next to Saul's head, and they got away without anybody seeing or waking up or noticing them. And then the next day, they go across this this valley to the opposite slope, and they call over. And David, he, he's kind of actually messing with one of uh, Saul's top military guys, this guy named Abner. He's like, Abner, hey, what are you guys doing? You're sleeping on the job. How did no one stay awake? to, um, to guard the King. Like you're sleeping on the job. You should lose your job for that. Somebody should kill you because you've not been adequate security. And everybody's kind of freaking out. And he's like, Hey, where's that spear that was next to the King's head? And they're like, Oh no, it's gone. And David makes it clear. He's like, I got it. I took it. And he tells Saul who's right there. Look, I had the opportunity. I could have killed you. And I want to show you that I am not going to, I will look upon you with mercy because you are the king and it is not my prerogative to take your life. I forgive you, Saul. He doesn't say it in so many words, but that's essentially what he's saying. Saul, I had the opportunity to take my vengeance, to take my wrath upon you. And I did not because vengeance is the Lord's. It is not mine. And so I took this spear to show you that if I wanted to kill you, I could have killed you. And this is at least the second time where something like this has happened. And David keeps saying, Saul, I'm not going to get you. I'm not going to kill you. So stop chasing me for Pete's sake because I don't want to be a threat to you. And Saul actually has this. It doesn't last for very long, but he has this pretty profound conversion where he recognizes, oh, my gosh, you you have spared me. You're right. You showed me Mercy. Thank you, David. I'm going to try to change. And he has this conversion. Again, it doesn't last, but it's this really beautiful moment where love of one's enemy actually results in a conversion of heart for the enemy. And that's, I think, what this reading is getting at and what it's pointing us ahead toward. So, that being said about the first reading, then we get to the psalm. And the responsorial psalm. I don't know exactly where 103 sort of fits into the life, but so many of the Psalms are believed to be composed by David himself. And some of the Psalms in the course of the Psalter, which is the name we give to all the Psalms put together, some of them give you little clues about where David is when he's writing that particular Psalm. Some of them say things like a Psalm of David when he was on the run from Saul, when he was hiding in the caves and, you know, such and such region. Or some of these things. This one, we don't know exactly the circumstances, but we know it's a Psalm of David. And we know that this sort of backdrop has got to be on his mind. And he says, the Lord is kind and merciful. (coughs) Excuse me. Bless the Lord, my soul. Bless uh, all my being. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul. Forget not his benefits. He pardons all your iniquities. He heals your ills. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with kindness and compassion, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, not according to to our sins does he deal with us. This is David's understanding of who God is. And it's hard, I think, to read to read that apart from how David chooses to act because David seems to have this insight that if I'm supposed to be king, my job is to be the representative of this. Now, David fails at that later on in all sorts of ways, but here when he's writing the Psalms, He seems to get, when he's acting towards Saul, he seems to get, no, who the Lord is. Fundamentally, the Lord is kind and he's merciful. He doesn't look on our sins. He pardons us. He is a God of mercy, not a God of wrath. And so if I act out of wrath, if I force people to pay for their sins and their iniquities, am I not being unlike God? Am I not being a bad representation of who God is? So I think it's significant that in the course of his life at some point, David, who recognizes it's his job to be God's visible representation on earth, recognizes who God is. Saul doesn't seem to get who God is. God is something else to Saul. You you get the impression that God is a God of wrath. God is a God of fear. God is a God of punishment. And sometimes, yes, God punishes. Sometimes God Uh, has to pour out wrath in different ways. But fundamentally, who God is, is mercy and love. And David acts upon that. And it's it's this really beautiful moment. This is in a lot of ways, despite all of his sin later on, this is why for the ancients, David is such a model of kingship. Not that he doesn't have his faults, not that he doesn't fall flat on his face, but so many things we learn about David show that he gets what it means to live the life of holiness. And holiness means nothing other than trying to be like God, which is what David demonstrates in the story. It's very beautiful. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians, which is sort of Paul's commentary. It Actually, at first glance, 1 Corinthians doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the program, but reading a little closer, it does. So Paul, in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, is dealing with this question of what does the resurrection mean? Because the Corinthians predominantly were coming from pagan backgrounds, non-Jewish Uh, backgrounds. And so they didn't really have a sense of the afterlife. And a lot of paganism at the time was this sort of understanding that that what it means to sort of reach spiritual fulfillment was to transcend earthly things, transcend physical things. And now Christianity steps into the picture and says, well, actually, when you die, you're going to get your bodies back, which for the Greek thinking world, that was not an attractive prospect because our bodies were weak. Our bodies get tired. Our bodies... Wear out, and spiritual enlightenment, so to speak, uh, consists of us sort of transcending our bodies. We're spiritual. This we 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 still kind of think like this sometimes in our modern culture. It's sort of a. Uh, A a neo-Gnosticism. Gnosticism always suggests that spiritual things are really good, material things are not so good. So we have to transcend. And Paul is giving them this message that actually that's not entirely true. It's not about transcending material things. It's actually about God redeeming material things, God taking materiality, taking human flesh so that flesh can be redeemed so that our humanity is not something to be transcended or gotten past, but it can actually be something to be embraced because God has glorified it. So here at at the very end of his long letter to the Corinthians, where he's dealing with this question of what does the resurrection mean, he says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, it is written, written, The first man, Adam, he became a living being. And the last Adam, who is Jesus, a life-giving spirit, But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural and then the spiritual. So in other words, it's not one or the other. It's not we're either physical or we're either bodies or souls. No, we're actually both. We're either physical or we're spiritual. No, we're actually both. And both are important. The first man, Adam, was from the earth. He was earthly. The second man came from heaven. As was the earthly one, so are we also earthly. We're all made from stuff of the earth. And as is the heavenly one, so are the earthly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly one, that is Adam, we bear the stain of sin. We also bear the image of the heavenly one, who is Jesus. And I think the reason that the church has seen fit to include this reading within the schema of the rest is that Paul is reminding his readers, he's doing it in the context of understanding what it means to be resurrected. But what he's saying is what it means to be resurrected means being the image of God. So, what Paul saw, right, I'm sorry, what uh, David rightly saw as the prerogative of the king, which was to be the representative of God, so that the world was supposed to look at the king and see an image of God, Yahweh. Now, Paul is saying actually that whole mindset has been democratized among all of us because Jesus is the true king. And because Jesus is the true king, He chose to become a real Adam, a real human being. And because he chose to do that, that means access to being like the king, to being like God, actually falls on all of us believers. So that the mandate, the imperative, is that the world ought to look at us and see an image of God. David enacted that in his life. Again, he blows it later on in all sorts of ways, in the same way that we blow it all sorts of times in our life, a hundred times in the course of the day. We're going to fail to be the image of God. But Paul is saying what we need to realize is that that's always the ideal we're striving for. The world needs to look at us and not just see another human being, not just see another sinful Adam, but to see an image of the divine, an image of forgiveness and mercy and the God who loves, the God who does not look upon our iniquities but pardons us, the God who does not just pour out his wrath and anger, but the God who gives us mercy and compassion often when we least deserve it. That's who God is. That's what David got, and that's what we're supposed to get to. We're supposed to be like David in that way, which is where we come to the Gospels, which... Is Jesus basically re-upping that mandate? Paul, in a lot of ways, is just giving commentary on what Jesus said and who Jesus is. But here in Luke, we actually get what Jesus said, and so Luke chapter six is coming from uh, what's sometimes called the Sermon on. Well, it's not. It's what's called the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's sort of version of what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount, and and some scholars have you know, kind of had a field day with this and say, well, look, the Bible's contradicting itself and Matthew calls it a Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it a Sermon on the Plain. Which one was it? And I think it's perfectly reasonable. If if this is one of Jesus's most important teaching lessons, one of his most important sermons, I think it's perfectly reasonable that he gave it in more than one place to more than one community and more than one uh, setting. We talked about this last week, I think, Father Peter and I. Um, but it's important to kind of revisit that because Jesus knows us. And he speaks to us. He speaks to individuals. He doesn't give sort of these universal generic statements. He speaks to every one of us. And that's what the scriptures are meant to do, to speak to us individually, to all of us, but to you and I. And so what Jesus says to you and I As he said to the crowds that are gathered in front of him on the plane, is this? Jesus says to his disciples, "To you who hear, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one as well. To the person who takes your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you from the one who takes what is yours. Don't demand it back. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. For to you, for if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you?" Even sinners do that. And he kind of goes on and on. Um, here's the one I want to say about this, and then we'll call it a day. We've heard this a million times, or at least many of us have heard this kind of thing. Love your enemies. Forgive people, right? Um, uh, pray for those who persecute you. He, he just doesn't say this here, but he says it in Matthew. But we've heard this stuff. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Um, turn the other cheek, right? These have become kind of idioms. And I think there is the danger of making them kind of overly generic. And I think it's really easy to hear something like this and have this kind of familiarity. Oh, love your enemies. I've heard that. Turn the other cheek. Okay. But to make it too abstract. And I think it's really easy to forget who our actual enemies are. Because when Jesus is speaking these words to this group of ragtag peasants, probably, who are gathered to hear his words... There's a very specific enemy that they are thinking of when he says these words. It's not their their next-door neighbor who kind of gets annoying. It's not, you know, the the person next door in the dorm who plays their music too loud. It's a very specific kind of enemy. And the one to whom hates you, the enemy, those who curse you, those who strike you on the cheek, those who take your cloak, those who demand something of you, these are not abstractions. For the ancient Jews, these were the Romans— very specifically, the enemy of all enemies, the ones who were persecuting and oppressing us, and the Roman soldiers who were on the side of the road and would pull you away from your family or away from wherever you were going and force you to give them your cloak if they felt like it, because that was the prerogative that the Roman army had. Who would force you, there's, it doesn't show up in Luke, but there's a line in Matthew that I think is one of the keys to kind of making this not abstract. But Matthew throws in, or Jesus in Matthew says this line, if anybody forces you to carry their bag for one mile, carry it for two. And that's the one where, like, you can read through this and, okay, love your enemies, I get that. Turn the other cheek, okay. Go the extra mile kind of a thing, right? That's actually where we get that term. But when was the last time somebody pulled you away and forced you to carry their backpack for one mile? Like, that's a really specific (laughs) instance, Which would have made sense in the Roman world because the Roman soldiers had a legal right to pull anybody they wanted to off the side of the road and conscript them to carry their bag for one mile. That was the law. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? Next time some Roman centurion pulls you off the side of the road away from your family as you're going to work, as you're hurrying someplace else, when they yank you off the road and they force you to carry their bag for one mile that they're legally allowed to do, why don't you go for two? Take it an extra mile and just see what happens. And I just, can you imagine how bizarre that would be to a Roman soldier who was doing this? Some Roman soldier demands you give them your cloak. Hey, I like that cloak. I want it. Give it to me or I'll kill you. And you give them your tunic as well. Oh, you you like this? Here, have this as well. Can you imagine how confusing that would be (laughs) to the Roman military? To these Roman soldiers who would strike you on the cheek and be like, I forgive you. Let me pray for you show them love. How bizarre that would be. And the reason I think that's fascinating, I I have a theory, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I find it striking that during the crucifixion, the first person to pronounce that Jesus really was the son of God was not one of the apostles. It wasn't a disciple. It wasn't even a Jew. It was the Roman centurion who's standing guard. He's the one who has the spiritual insight, this grace to recognize Jesus and say, oh man, yeah, no, this guy is the son of God. He's the king. He's divine. How did he know? How did he have this insight that even the apostles don't seem to get? And I wonder, and actually if you read the Gospels and act to the apostles carefully, there's Roman centurions everywhere. All over the place, there's Roman soldiers who keep having conversions. Why? Well, I always wonder, could it be that People took Jesus's advice. People took seriously what he asked of them. And there were Roman soldiers who forced people to carry their bag. And there were people who said, you know what? Let me carry it another for you. And there were soldiers who forced their their cloaks from them. And they said, here, let me give you my tunic. Who actually showed them love in these ways that were completely something that caught them off guard. Because I'm convinced that one of the keys to evangelization is confusing people. <laughs> When people have a certain expectation of how we ought to respond, and we respond the opposite. We respond otherwise. And all of a sudden, people's expectations are blown out of the water. And they say, wait, what? I thought you were going to be mad at me. I thought you were going to curse me. I thought you were going to cuss me out. But you didn't. Saul thought, well, if David gets close enough, of course he's going to kill me. And David says, no, I'm not. I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to show you mercy because that's who God is. And Saul is so surprised, he's so caught off guard, and he's so moved that he has this profound conversion moment. And I wonder if the same thing is happening to these Roman soldiers. They are so caught off guard by these Christians, these followers of Jesus, that they say, you guys have something that I do not understand. I don't have a category for this, and I want to know. And then is it any surprise that through the grace of God, working through that curiosity, that they keep coming to the gospel and that in not too many years, the entire Roman empire, including the emperor himself, Constantine, actually converts because that's what taking Jesus's words seriously does. And so when we make these, these, uh, these commands to love our enemies, to pray for people who persecute you, to turn the other cheek, when we make them abstract as some generic enemies that we're never actually going to come in contact with, we totally lose it. But when we're challenged to figure out in our lives, no, who is the person who I really hate? Maybe it's a political figure, <laughs> you know, and it's fun to kind of point out all the politicians who, you know, are, are you really do you actually pray for Donald Trump? Hey, do you actually pray for Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama? Oh, no, I, I mean, I, all I say I pray for them. I mean, when you challenge people with the people that really ruffle their feathers, do you really love that person? Do you actually pray for them? Well, I, I, I don't know about that. Or, you know, make it less abstract. Politicians, they're, they're distant from us. But who is that person in your life or that you recognize or that you know of or that you haven't talked to in years that you just hate or that hates you? How do you pray for them? How do you love them? How do you surprise them with your generosity, with your mercy, with your compassion, showing who God is through the actions to those who would least expect it? Because the risk of taking these things and making them abstractions makes us lose the gospel. And it makes us unable to be the images of God in the world. Because the image of God in the world is always an image that surprises us. He always shows up in the unexpected. He always comes in the ways that we're not quite ready for. And when we recognize him and when we see him, we have to reconcile that and figure out, whoa, what are you doing there, God? You're in that part of my life. You've done that for me. You've brought me back to life in that way. You've reconciled that part of my life. You want me to love that person? You want forgiveness from that thing? That's where God always works. And that's what it means to be holy, to surprise the world in such a way that they say, oh man, I thought Catholics were all fill in the blank. I assumed Christians all thought blank, but you guys actually love me. You guys actually want to show compassion to me. I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. So I think that's the challenge with all these. David shows us how to do it in a very concrete, tangible way. Jesus gives us the instruction. He throws out the challenge. Paul tells us what it means. The psalm helps us to reflect on how profound it is. And David says, hey, here's how you do it. So that's what I got this week. We will be back next week. Both of us together, Father Peter and I will both be in the same chairs together. Well, not the same chairs, but we'll be in the group together. So um, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for bearing with just me. Uh, We'll be back next week. And please keep us in your prayers and know that we pray for you all. See you next time. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.